You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everyone. It's Takuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. This episode is brought to you by our Patreon members. Thank you so much. Join our Patreon for extra episodes, interviews, extra content, and to help support the podcast and help us continue to do the work we do. Go to patreon.com slash ancienthistoryfangirl to learn more. And the pus flowed, discharging itself down into the sea. Jenny Williamson. And I'm Jen McMenemy. And this is Ancient History Fangirl, Corpses Everywhere Edition. <laughs> oh boy, Jenny, I'm gonna need a drink. We're both gonna need a drink, Jen. Motherfucker, I'm ready for a drink. <laughs> I'm gonna preface this by saying that Jen and I are both people who lived through a pandemic, as no doubt you are if you are listening to this podcast and you're alive in 2023. We've all lived through a pandemic. We were both alone during the pandemic. It was rough for us. I'm not saying it it was Black Death level rough, but it was rough. Yeah, it was rough. I also had a family member who had a a terminal illness. It was a tough time. We still are unpacking a lot of that, as I'm sure many of you are. Today, we're going to delve into a very ancient plague that killed a lot of people. And it just might not be what you want to listen to if you're still unpacking 2020. Or it might indeed be what you want to listen to because Jen and I decided that together we were going to do this and that we were going to drink a lot. Like a lot. Yule level drinking. I think it's the only way I can handle this. Jenny did all the primary research and all I had to do is like read it and check and make notes and just, you know, make sure I understood what the thesis was and everything that was going on. And I said to Jenny, I was like, I don't even know if I can read this through without having a drink. I I did manage that. But uh, I know I can't record it without a drink. It is so dark. Some people don't like humor around very serious subjects and some people like it. As I've said, Jen and I have both been through it. You know, humor is our way of coping sometimes. If you know you're not going to be into that, just be aware. And I'm not sure what direction this is going to take. Like, this might turn out to be funny or very maudlin. I really don't know. (laughs) I can't promise this is going to be funny, you guys. But we found... (laughs) So we've both been... (laughs) Should we tell them about the buzz balls? Yeah. So um, if you're in America, uh, and I think they're in Canada now too, you might have seen in your grocery store or liquor store these little things called, I say things, they're sort of (laughs) ball-shaped. 
They're called Buzz Balls, and they are kind of our new favorite weird guilty pleasure drink. Uh, they are sneaky little bitches, okay? Yeah, they're sneaky fuckers. Look out. <laughs> the first time Jenny had it, she's like, yeah, it wrecked me. And I was like, it's little. I don't see how that could happen. And then I drank one, and I was like, that's sneaky little bitch. So, you know, drink with your own caution. I will say Buzz Balls are a female-owned company. So, yeah, that's good. Support that. What flavor Buzz Ball do you have, Jen? I have a strawberry margarita and also a chocolate one. I'm going to have two because I would like to see if I can get to Yule levels. I think I can only handle one without being horrifically hungover tomorrow. And mine is a Lada Colada one. I think it's pina colada flavored. I've never had this before, but I am only drinking the one. Although I did buy a second one just in case. It's like break glass if, if there's an emergency situation. Yeah, we're calling this recording the Buzzballs and Bubos recording. That's the working title, at least. Buzzballs and Bubos. Join us, please. Join us. Uh, shall we open our drinks? Three, two, one. Oh, it exploded all over my face. Well, this is how this is going to go. It bursts like a bad bubos. <laughs> Ew! Ugh, bubos! So, Jen, let's try to be serious for a minute, okay? I have a very serious question to ask you. Why did the Roman Empire fall, do you suppose? St. Columba and his lack of boundaries. Crassus's severed head had a prediction, and uh, it gave the exact name and date and time when the empire would fall, and that's it. The Pictish beast came down from Scotland and just got revenge on the entirety of the Roman Empire. A wizard did it? Possible. Scholars have blamed wizards and many other factors over the years, including the Pictish beast, Crassus's severed head, corruption, barbarian invaders, climate change famine, moral decay, lead poisoning, Christianity, my personal favorite, which is general malaise. <laughs> I thought Nero ended the empire, right? That would be under general malaise. <laughs> <laughs> It was Commodus. Remember Commodus when he fought Maximus in the movie Gladiator? That's what ended the Roman Empire, right? I think that falls under lead poisoning. <laughs> <laughs> it was Commodus's weird-shaped penis, right? Oh, that's pro <laughs> Weird-shaped penises might have played a role. Um, <laughs> and many other causes. And there are some who believe it never really fell at all, only changed. But, but, have you considered that a volcano did it? Yes, because I consider a volcano as the reason for almost everything happens. I know. <laughs> and have you considered... And that I might be a volcano conspiracy theorist? <laughs> yeah. Have you considered that one of the worst fallouts of the volcano, the thing that really sent the empire spiraling to its doom, was a plague? Have you considered that? Yeah, because the first episode I did this season was on the Ten Plagues of Egypt. Where we talked about the plagues coming from a volcano. <laughs> Jen has considered that, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Again, I might be a volcano conspiracy theorist at this point. But anyway, realistically, this is an episode about a plague that killed upwards of 100 million people by the time it was done, as many as 60% of its victims. It's the first documented occurrence of a pandemic that we have. And it's the first documented outbreak of the deadly Yersinia pestis. No, I'm not talking about the Black Death of medieval Europe. Oh, no, no. 
I'm talking about its big sister. I'm talking about the plague of Justinian. I'm talking about when Pesta stalked the ancient Mediterranean and ancient world. Yeah, Pesta, not just a Norwegian thing. Think about it. Think about it. So, Jen, who was Justinian? Oh, let me tell you about Justinian. (laughs) Justinian was born into a family of peasants sometime around 482 AD. His uncle, Justin, who had been a swineherd as a teenager, had a stroke of good luck when barbarians invaded his tiny town, and he and two friends fled to Byzantium with nothing but a sack of bread between them. From there, Justin joined the palace guard and worked his way up in the military until, through a series of improbable events, mostly it was bribery, he became emperor at the age of 68. Upward mobility was still alive and well in the empire. No ageism here. That's exciting to be emperor at 68. Yeah, good for him. Anyway, Justin adopted his nephew Justinian when he was highly placed in the court, so Justinian grew up in the imperial court, rising in increasingly influential positions. His uncle Justin became emperor in 518, and there are those who believe that it was Justinian calling the shots long before he died in 527. Justinian was ambitious and devoted to what people were starting to call Renovatio Romanorium. 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 This does not. I'm pretty sure that's how you say it. (laughs) Which meant renewal of the Romans. By this point, the Roman Empire was a far cry from what it used to be. Its territory had contracted to a narrow ring around the Mediterranean Sea. The great conquered lands of Gaul, Britain, Spain, and others were lost. The great city of Rome had been sacked by Jenny's boyfriend, Alaric of the Visigoths. He sacked a city for her, y'all. My boyfriend! Hi! Alaric of the Visigoths had sacked that city for Jenny over a hundred years ago by now. He loves me. He loves me. (laughs) Oh my god, I got buzzball inside my recording box. (laughs) (laughs) That's a boobo full of alcohol. (laughs) The chocolate one is really good. I didn't know if I was going to like it or not, but I really like it. Anyway. The great city of Rome had been reduced from a population of more than a million to less than 35,000. It was now a sprawling, overgrown ruin with islands of inhabited buildings amongst overgrown streets and squares, all the great marble monuments overgrown and falling apart. The entirety of Italy was controlled by the Ostrogoths. Justinian wanted to take it all back. He wanted to restore the Western Roman Empire to its greatest glory and recover everything that was lost. And he made good progress at it, too. In the next 14 years, with military campaigns that won back swaths of Spain, North Africa, Italy, and Eastern Europe, until 541 BC. And then came the plague that brought his empire to its knees. So I know people are going to ask us about his wife, Theodora. She was a sex worker. He did a lot of things in the laws that made life better for women and sex workers, theoretically. I haven't done the deep dive. Justinian might have done some feminist things. I'm not sure yet. Going to look into it. But for now, I'm just focusing on this very narrow area of his life because it's it's a big enough story, you guys. <laughs> she might be someone we cover next season, um, which is our kind of odds and sods season. Or maybe we'll cover her in a Patreon. So we're not ignoring her or leaving her out. We're also not covering a lot of Justinian's life either. We're just giving you the context to talk about the plague. So at this point, we should pause a minute and talk about how Yersinia pestis works, because actually it's pretty metal. (laughs) 
It's unusual for us to be really sure of what disease was actually the cause of most ancient pandemics, and that's not the case for the Plague of Justinian, primarily because we have DNA evidence. Scientists extracting DNA from the teeth of plague victims in Germania, all the way up in Germania, isolated the genes of Yersinia pestis in, I think it was 2013. The Black Death did it, Chen. It was always the Black Death. Yersinia pestis is primarily a disease of small rodents like rats and squirrels and mice. And while it can be deadly to these animals, often, from what I understand, it isn't. It can circulate for a long time at low levels in rodent populations, historically mainly in Asia and the Near East, although it is in different places now. Only three times in recorded history, at least that I know of, has it broken out to human populations at the pandemic level. The first time was the Plague of Justinian, the second the Black Death in medieval Europe, and the third was in 1894 in Yunnan, China, although smaller outbreaks do occur even today. It is extremely rare. Yersinia pestis is a bacteria that lives in the guts of fleas. The bacteria blocks the gut of the flea, causing it to starve. And while starving, it'll bite anything. It'll bite rats, but it will also be more eager to leap to other hosts, like human, like humans. Just that one human, his name is Bob, and he's, he's patient zero. Right. Wouldn't it be great if it was combined to the one person? I mean, not for that guy, but... No, I know. well, it wouldn't, because he'd still cough all over everything and spread it, or, or have a Bebo that explodes in your face, like a buzzball. I don't think we're doing anything for buzzballs branding, really, like... <laughs> <laughs> They're actually really good. They are delicious. Anyway. They're, and they will wreck you, so if you want to get wrecked. So if you're listening to this episode being like, what did Jen drink? <laughs> now you know. Anyway, diseased fleas are more... <laughs> <laughs> We're doing awesome. Diseased fleas are more motivated to move to other hosts than usual. When an infected flea bites a mammal, it's too diseased to even ingest the blood. It throws that human blood back into its bite, transmitting bacteria into the animal's bloodstream. From there, the bacteria attacks the immune system, replicates inside the animal's lymph nodes, and causes all kinds of damage. Disgusting damage. Because I got all up in it in this episode, let me tell you what. Mm-hmm. And I left a lot out. I mean, to be fair. <laughs> I mean, you could have left more out. <laughs> <laughs> Records show that the Justinian Plague was extremely fatal. Eyewitness accounts suggest there were 10,000 people dying a day in some cities, although these numbers are disputed. More modern estimates suggest that as many as 1 in 3 people on the low end and roughly 3 in 5 people on the high end died of the plague. But how likely you are to die depends on the type of plague you come down with. Yersinia pestis can cause three different types of infection, bubonic plague, pneumonic plague, and septicemic plague. They're all caused by the same bacterium, and which one you get depends on what part of your body gets infected. So, bubonic plague is the most famous kind, the kind with the buboes. Buboes are painful, swollen lymph nodes that usually appear in the groin, thighs, neck, or armpits. They can be as big as a golf ball. They can rupture, which is very gross and painful and can kill you. Or they can turn necrotic, rotting the tissue around them, which can also kill you. Eyewitness accounts said that the pain of these buboes themselves could kill you. This is why we're laughing. Because <laughs> otherwise we'd cry. She's not lying. So, you get bubonic plague when you're bitten by an infected flea. 
The buboes are caused by the bacteria replicating in the lymph nodes. After you're bitten, you can expect flu-like symptoms to develop in one to seven days afterwards, and then your health will take a really bad turn. Many die within 10 days. Without modern treatment, approximately 30 to 90% of patients die. We do have antibiotics now, and the Black Death is quite treatable with antibiotics. So if you catch it, you're probably going to be okay as long as you can get to a place where they have antibiotics. Anyway, so I'm going to talk about pneumonic plague now. (laughs) Pneumonic plague is what happens when you breathe in the bacteria, usually from an infected person coughing or sneezing or breathing in infected droplets in the air. It's a severe lung infection that causes chest pain, shortness of breath, fever and headache, and coughing up blood. Without modern treatment, fatality is 100%, often within 36 hours. Like, this always kills you. 36 hours, too. Like, fast. Doesn't surprise me. Your lungs will just sort of choke on themselves. It's awful. And so the third type of plague is septicemic plague. And there are lots of accounts in the historical record of people's skin and appendages turning black and rotting off while they're still alive. That is septicemic plague. It is a blood infection that occurs as a complication of both pneumonic and bubonic plague, but it can also occur on its own. For instance, if infected fluids enter your bloodstream through a cut, or if the bacteria infects your bloodstream rather than your lymph nodes or lungs, or if it infects both at the same time. Yeah, because septicemia is still something many people die of. It's an infection, usually an internal infection that can't be fought off by antibiotics. So what happens is that tiny blood clots form in your veins, blocking circulation and starving parts of your body of blood and oxygen. This causes tissue to turn black, dye, and rot while you're still alive, basically turning it gangrenous. All these little blood clots deplete your body's resources to form clots when you need them, so the rest of your blood doesn't clot as it should. An extensive bleeding can occur under your skin, causing extensive bruising, virulent rashes, bleeding from the mouth, nose, and rectum, and coughing or vomiting blood. Without treatment, this is almost always fatal. So really, the only way you can survive the plague is if you get really lucky, you get bubonic plague, and the infection doesn't move into your bloodstream or lungs. These days, we have modern antibiotics to prevent the infection from progressing that far. But back then, you just had to be really lucky. You better be saying all your prayers to Fortuna. Well, if you were Greek, um, Hygienia. And Escapolis. And Apollo. Ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. I'm Helena Bonham Carter, and for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes, a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II. They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk-takers. What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts. Hello everyone, you may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. 
and my name is Brenna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore all of the weird little questions and conspiracies of the universe in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything. Everything has an explanation. We hope. But that is what we're here to figure out. We will dive into the science behind many popular conspiracy theories, such as vaccines causing autism, flat earth theory, and was the moon landing fake? And if so, why the heck would anyone even do that? But it's not just conspiracies. There's a lot of cool mysteries that we will attempt to use science to explain, such as near-death experiences, what made the Vikings go berserk, and can I control my co-host with MK Ultra? Wait, what? <laughs> anyway, make sure to check out the Mischief Everything podcast everywhere where you find your podcasts. And let's talk about conditions in ancient Roman cities for a second, because they really encouraged the spread of this. I mean, it was spread easily anyway, but it really, there were some conditions here that were working against people. So... Ancient cities in general were vectors for all kinds of disease, and this is especially true of ancient Roman cities. To understand why, you have to know about the insulae, rickety apartment buildings, particularly in Rome, I'm sure they were in other cities as well, where people lived on top of each other in buildings that frequently collapsed or caught fire. They're like apartment buildings, basically, and in which there was no running water, except for maybe a communal fountain in a courtyard in the center. Like, if you have your own running water and your own baths and toilet and stuff, you're probably really, really rich. People relied on communal baths, communal toilets, and communal fountains for all their washing and personal hygiene needs. So let's start with the baths, because we're going to go into detail here. The ancient Romans were very into their communal baths, where everyone would get naked and bathe together. Sometimes men and women had separate facilities, and sometimes they didn't. This was a place where people from all social strata, except for the extremely wealthy who had their own baths, but, you know, the just basically wealthy still did this, got naked and soaked their dirty, filthy, sweaty bodies in water that was hardly ever changed. Roman writers complain about how filthy the public baths were, about how the water was just a warmed-over slurry of dirt and scraped-off oil and poop and bodily fluids. Ew, poop. People pooped, seriously. They were talking about it in the ancient Roman sources. Doctors advised you not to go to the baths with open wounds lest you catch gangrene. And the fact that they had to say it means a lot of people were going to the baths with open wounds. I don't know. That's my guess. <laughs> yeah. Tell us about the toilets, Jen. Oh, yeah. I'm so glad you gave me the toilet paragraph. I talked about the warmed over slurry. <laughs> I think I'd prefer that to the poop stick. <laughs> so, as we mentioned, then there was the issue with the public toilets. Again, there were no toilets in most insulae or apartment buildings. People would use chamber pots, but there were also public toilets, where people sat on benches with no dividers that were as few as 18 inches apart. They pooped into a hole and wiped their butts with a communal butt sponge, which was a known vector for spreading intestinal worms, whipworm, roundworm, and parasites that caused dysentery. All of these were common to get off the poop stick. Ugh, I guess they didn't disinfect them at all. I think they had a bucket of vinegar that they plunged them into. I'm not sure how disinfectory that would be. Oh, can you imagine if you had, like, a wound and you were just rubbing a butt stick into your, ugh, if you had a hemorrhoid, it'd be awful. Anyway, I'm going to need another buzz ball in a minute. Anyway, so ancient Roman cities were, in general, just disease hotbeds, or diseased hotbeds. <laughs> Either or is accurate. 
So another factor was the grain distribution system. Grain largely wasn't locally produced in the Roman Empire. I mean, sometimes it was, but frequently it wasn't, depending on where you were. And the time period we're talking about. In general, it was produced in breadbasket provinces and shipped throughout the empire in order to equalize food security. In some cities and towns, there was also a grain doll, or the cura anane, which may have continued into Justinian's time. This was just a huge silo of public grain, given out for free or at a low cost to those in need. And you know what comes with grain, Jenny. You know what comes with grain. Rats. And you know what comes with rats. Plague. (laughs) So grain was shipped and redistributed all over the empire from places that produced grain, some of them paid their taxes in grain, to places that needed it, including large cities like Byzantium and Rome. Large grain supplies also traveled with armies. All throughout the Roman Empire, grain was moving all the time. That's how the empire functioned. With the grain came the rats. With the rats came the fleas. With the fleas came the plague. We have... Three, three eyewitness accounts of the plague of Justinian. Perhaps the earliest in terms of chronology is that of Procopius. And I just see his name and I always want to call him Procrustes from mythology, the serial killer, but I, I, he's not. His name is Procopius. Well, also Procopius was one of our sources for 536 AD. So if you are recognizing that name, that's why. Dude had seen some shit. Poor dude. So... Procopius's secret history was written probably in 550, only about nine years after the plague started. Procopius tells us that the sickness began in Pelusium, a fortress city in Egypt, roughly 180 miles east of Alexandria. It came on the grain barges. DNA evidence suggests that this strain of Yersinia pestis originated in Central Asia, but we don't know enough to pinpoint where. Now, Egypt was, at the time, the central breadbasket and distribution hub for most of the grain in the Roman Empire. Grain was produced in the region and shipped there from elsewhere, and then redistributed throughout the Mediterranean. As soon as diseased rats were in those grain shipments, the Roman Empire was doomed. The sailors on those grain barges were probably dead or possibly dying by the time they arrived in Pelusium anyway. And once they docked, rats streamed out from the boats and into the city. From there, the disease spread to other parts of Egypt, into the grain depots, and onto the other barges, and throughout the Mediterranean world. Procopius was in Constantinople when the plague hit. He called it Byzantium. And I'm just going to use the word Byzantium, because that's what it was then. This city was the capital of the Roman Empire at the moment, since Rome had been taken over by Ostrogoths. Byzantium was also a port city, famous for its complex and formidable fortifications, the Theodosian Walls, which we've talked about in other episodes in the distant past. But the Theodosian Walls couldn't protect against this. Nothing can once it's inside your city. Except antibiotics, but we're not there yet. The plague started in the port areas, the lowland areas which were poorer and more crowded, and also had a higher rat population, and potentially might have had sewage problems because a lot of things would have emptied into the river. Ancient Roman cities had better sewage than most cities, but they probably were draining a lot of things into, you know, the harbors, so you're probably not wrong. Mm Mm-hmm. But then the plague spread quickly into the rich neighborhoods in the hills. Even Justinian himself caught the plague, though he was lucky. He survived. 
Procopius tells us that the plague seemed to move as if intelligently guided, spreading in all directions to the ends of the world, leaving neither, quote, island nor cave nor mountain ridge, untouched. He said it always started on the coast and moved into the interior. And that's probably like an example of a really astute observation. And also like that's how people started to realize it was coming by boat, you know? Right, because they don't really know, they don't know about germs, they don't know about fleas and Yersinia pestis, but they notice that it starts on the coast. So there must be something about the coast. So Procopius was in town when the plague hit Byzantium. By then, he'd have heard rumors of it spreading elsewhere, because it didn't get to Byzantium until its second year. There was a whole year where it was out in the countryside before it got there. The first thing Procopius mentions is visions of supernatural beings. And there is a lot of this in the original eyewitness sources, like blaming things on various supernatural beings. So, quote from Procopius, Apparitions of supernatural beings in human guise of every description were seen by many persons, and those who encountered them thought that they were struck by the man they had met in this or that part of the body. And immediately upon seeing this apparition, they were seized also by the disease. Now at first, those who met these creatures tried to turn them aside by uttering the holiest of names and exercising them in other ways as well as each one could. But they accomplished absolutely nothing, for even in the sanctuaries where the most of them fled, for refuge, they were dying constantly. But later on, they were unwilling even to give heed to their friends when they called to them, and they shut themselves up in their rooms and pretended that they did not hear— although their doors were being beaten down, fearing, obviously, that he who was calling was one of those demons. But in the case of some, the pestilence did not come on in this way. But they saw a vision in a dream and seemed to suffer the very same thing at the hands of the creature who stood over them, or else to hear a voice foretelling to them that they were written down in the number of those who were to die. But with the majority, it came about that they were seized by the disease without becoming aware of what was coming either through a waking vision or a dream. So I figured we could unpack this now. Oh, I mean, I have so many thoughts. First off, growing up incredibly religious and also from two very superstitious backgrounds, like, you can see what they're doing here, right? You can see later mythologies about different specters attached to death. Like, even our pesta is here, but they're not calling her pesta. You can imagine, you know, our Morrigan, our Banshees, they're all here. They're just not called that. People seeking a rational or supernatural, which to them, I guess, was rational-ish, explanation for something that was happening that they couldn't explain. Yeah, because also I think, you know, one of the things that's really difficult sometimes for modern audiences to understand is, like, we understand things on a very different level than they did, right? Like, we're like, oh, we can understand it spread this way and this is what you do. But in the end... You're still, if you got this particular disease today and we didn't have antibiotics, you still would have the same odds of survival that they would. So you'd have to make some sense of it. And I think, you know, the reality is that it's easier in some ways to think like, oh, it's a supernatural entity. And if I kind of like if this doesn't happen to me and I don't see these signs, then I'll be okay. As opposed to it is just completely random and carried by rats and fleas that you probably won't see entering your home. Yeah, and he does mention at the end that with the majority, it happened without people having a dream or even having a waking vision. Like, it's just people would be seized by the disease but without becoming aware of what was coming. And I think that's such a clue as to what the mindset was, you know, because 
you really see Procopius just searching for some kind of explanation here. One thing that just comes through with all the eyewitness accounts that I've got here is confusion. People searching for patterns, they ascribe things to supernatural beings, and they look for answers. But the Black Death is a disease that has lots of different symptoms depending on the kind you get. And that's super confusing if you don't have a modern understanding of what is happening. It can be bewildering. Absolutely. And it's one of those things where, you know, like I always go back to our Ancient Vampires episode, our first one. When you don't understand what's happening, when you can't explain it, you don't have the language, it's very natural to turn to the supernatural because it gives you a feeling of control over something that's completely beyond you. Like the way diseases work is completely beyond the understanding. And also, as I've mentioned, whether or not you survive is a lot of times in this case, open to luck to which strand you get, how bad it is, and whether or not your body can sustain itself while it's healing. That's not something anyone is comfortable with. No one is comfortable with knowing that I'm not comfortable with knowing that, you know, I want to have a way to fight it. And if it's supernatural, then there should be a way to fight it. Maybe, theoretically. There should be a cursed tablet I can do, or a goddess I can call on, or God. Or a spell, yeah. Procopius doesn't just talk about the supernatural stuff. Oh, no. He also writes about how the disease progressed with eyewitness clarity. Quote, and they were taken in the following manner. They had a sudden fever. Some, when just roused from sleep, others while walking about, and others while otherwise engaged without any regard to what they were doing. And the body showed no change from its previous color, nor was it hot, as might be expected when attacked by a fever. Oh, if it wasn't hot, it was probably a septicemic fever. Fuck. I guess, I don't know. No, that's what my father-in-law died of. My father-in-law died of septicemia, and it's a, it's a type of blood poisoning. And he wasn't feeling well, but he had no fever, and I didn't know that that was what was wrong with him. And if I'd known, we got him to the hospital sooner, who knows? Anyway, nor did they see any inflammation set in, but the fever was of such a languid sort from its commencement and up till evening that neither to the sick themselves nor to a physician who touched them would it afford any suspicion of danger. Does that sound like what your father-in-law had? Yeah, he got, when he died, he had, um, he died of septicemia. And when it came on originally, I didn't know that's what he had. I was looking for signs of fever. I didn't know that like a, the type of like infection he had would give him symptoms of fever, but no temperature. So he just wasn't feeling well. So, you know, we took him to the hospital and he was sick, but he didn't have a fever. And that's also something that can happen. Like we were regularly like taking his temperature, looking after him, but that's what it was. There are certain things you look for. And if you, you don't know about them, then you don't know how to treat them. And it, back then they, they didn't know it and I didn't know it, you know, just a few years ago. So it's, yeah, it's fucked up. You okay? Yeah, you take over. Okay, so I'll take over. So, quote, It was natural, therefore, that not one of those who, who had contracted the disease expected to die from it. But on the same day in some cases, and others on the following day, and then the rest, not many days later, a bubonic swelling developed. And this took place not only in the particular part of the body which is called bubon, that is, below the abdomen, but also inside the armpit, and in some cases beside the ears, and at different points on the thighs. Yeah, so what he's explaining is where your lymph nodes are. They didn't, probably didn't call them that at the time, but that's what he's explaining. Absolutely. 
And he's describing, like, possibly septicemic infection that is coming on at the same time as the bubonic infection. Yeah, which makes sense because it probably got in their bloodstream via a cut. Or just the flea biting them. Yep. I'm baffled that it ever happened that somebody got bubonic plague without also getting septicemic plague because the disease has to go to the bloodstream before it reaches your lymph nodes, right? Not necessarily. So the way your lymph nodes work is they swell up um, when you get an infection. They're kind of like, or if I'm thinking of this right, the lymph nodes and the glands. Like a lot of times people know you're sick. Like your doctor, I remember going as a kid, would always feel like my lymph nodes, my glands, to see if they'd swollen up. Because that's usually your body's first sign of like trying to fight an infection. So I guess it's however it gets in. I mean, again, we're not doctors. We're not doctors. That disclaimer needs to be present. We may have an incomplete understanding of all this stuff. Yeah, I guess it's however it gets into your bloodstream. I don't think it has to directly go into your blood because, like, you can get pneumonia, but, like, you know, and that's water on your lungs, but nobody's putting extra water into your lungs, you know. It's from an illness that you got probably airborne or bacterial. There's, like, two different types of pneumonia as well. Potentially something like that. I don't, I don't know. I'm not sure. We don't know. We're drunk. Yeah, we're, we're just randoms. We are drunk. We're sweeping over our buzz balls right now. And crying over over our buzz balls and bubos. We're fine. We're fine. Jen's fine. This is not really triggering. It's fine. It's not triggering for either one of us. I don't know what you're talking about. Anyway, Procopius wrote that the doctors were at a loss to understand the disease. They noticed that sometimes people died almost immediately. Sometimes they died only after many days. There were a bewildering array of extremely nasty symptoms with seemingly no rhyme or reason behind them. Very experienced doctors couldn't predict with accuracy who would live and who would die. The sickness tended to strike everyone, young and old, healthy and sick, rich and poor. Some people died while receiving excellent care, and some who were neglected lived. Treatments of the time achieved extremely unpredictable and varying results. Pregnant women suffered especially. They were almost certainly going to die if they got sick, usually after miscarriage or during childbirth. Procopius says that the plague burned through Byzantium in four months and peaked at around three. At its peak, he says 10,000 people were dying per day. That's what he says. People have disputed that, but that's what he says. Things got so bad that burial customs really broke down. Quote, At that time, all the customary rites of burial were overlooked, For the dead were not carried out escorted by a procession in the customary manner, nor were the usual chants sung over them. But it was sufficient if one carried on his shoulders the body of one of the dead to the parts of the city which bordered on the sea and flung him down, and there the corpses would be thrown upon skiffs in a heap to be conveyed wherever it might chance. Dark times, kids. So... Space ran out in normal graveyards. The emperor gave orders to dig large trenches. But these ran out of space, too. People started breaking into ancient tombs to bury their dead. In Galata, a neighborhood in Byzantium, people tore the roofs off the guard towers and threw corpses in. In, quote, complete disorder, piled them up just as each one happened to fall. They filled all the towers with corpses— and then put the roofs back on. Procopius says that an evil stench permeated the city, and this freaked everyone out still more, especially when the wind was blowing from Galata. I mean, just the corpse towers. I can't get over the corpse towers. All right, I'm writing a book called The Tower of Corpses. (laughs) Because that's a real thing that really happened. It's a real thing that really happened, and I'm going to write about it. 
Another interesting thing you find here is people self-isolating, which is a way to deal with a pandemic. I mean, many of us did that. I absolutely did that. Many of us listening have done that. I certainly did. Probably almost all of us have done that. So these people were self-isolating, not systemically out of public policy, but due to fear. Procopius writes that during this time, people did not go out. Those who were still healthy stayed inside, either mourning the dead or attending to their sick relatives. I mean, there's also paranoia. People were staying in because of that. We've covered that. Well, yeah, there was also all the supernatural creatures. These weren't sexy, suck-and-fuck vampires. I'm not going out if it's not the sexy ones. I'm not seeing anything in Procopius about whether or not the supernatural creatures were hot. So I'm not going out. Anyway, um, so to continue with this whole thought about sick relatives here, attending to the sick was not for the faint of heart. Not only because of the risk of contracting the disease yourself, but because of the delirium that would sometimes set in. So here's a quote that talks about the difficulties of caregiving for a loved one who was infected with the Black Death. Quote, good lord. For here ensued with some plague patients a deep coma, with others a violent delirium, and in either case they suffered the characteristic symptoms of the disease. For those who were under the spell of the coma forgot all those who were familiar to them and seemed to lie sleeping constantly. And if anyone cared for them, they would eat without waking but some also were neglected, and these would die directly through lack of sustenance. But those who were seized with delirium suffered from insomnia and were victims of a distorted imagination. For they suspected that men were coming upon them to destroy them, and they would become excited and rush off in flight, crying out at the top of their voices. And those who were attending them were in a state of constant exhaustion and had a most difficult time of it throughout. For this reason, everybody pitied them no less than the sufferers. For when the patients fell from their beds and lay rolling upon the floor, they kept putting them back in place. And when they were struggling to rush headlong out of their houses, they would force them back by shoving and pulling against them. And when water chanced to be near, they wished to fall into it, not so much because of a desire for drink, for the most of them rushed into the sea— but the cause was to be found chiefly in the diseased state of their minds. They had also great difficulty in the matter of eating, for they could not easily take food, and many perished through lack of any man to care for them, for they were either overcome by hunger or threw themselves down from a height. So, I mean, I really appreciate how he touches on caregiving as its own burden here. Yeah, I mean, anyone who's ever been a caregiver for someone who is very ill or dying really can understand everything that he's just mentioned here. Absolutely. I've done it. It's real tough. It's real tough on you. It's real tough watching that happen. And, you know, one of the things he's not saying, because he doesn't know how to say it, is probably a lot of these caregivers, if they didn't get sick from the disease, got very sick from something else very quickly, because that type of caregiving just runs you down. Absolutely, it does. Yeah. I mean, I've gone through it as well with a close family member who had end stage cancer. So we've both been through it. And I appreciate that Procopius has as much compassion for the caregivers as he has for the people who have the disease because it is really, really fucking hard. So according to Procopius, people were self isolating, not as we mentioned out of any public health measure or rule, but because caregiving was so onerous. They couldn't leave their houses. 
or they were afraid of meeting a ghost on the street who would strike them dead. Who is not hot, let's be clear. They are, these are not hot, I'm sorry, they're not. Or maybe the streets were just violent and lawless and full of dead bodies and stench, and you couldn't get food anyway, so if you did see someone healthy out and about, it was probably because they were burying a body. It may have slowed the spread, this people staying inside, although it probably didn't slow it by much. All work everywhere ground to a halt. Essential workers walked off the job, and people starved because they couldn't get food. Some people died due to lack of necessities, whether sick or not. Even Justinian got sick, developing a bubo on his groin, although he recovered. Pele, Hawaiian goddess of volcanoes, fire, and rebirth. Maeve, Celtic warrior queen and nemesis of heroes. Kiyohime, Japanese fire-breathing snake demon. Pesta, Norwegian spirit of the Black Death. Our book, Women of Myth, is a fascinating look at women and femme characters in world mythology, including goddesses, heroines, and monsters, with captivating illustrations by Ringo Award-nominated artist Sarah Richard. It's the perfect gift for the mythology lover in your life, including yourself. Find Women of Myth wherever books are sold. So... The next eyewitness account that we have is from John of Ephesus. Okay, so before we get to John of Ephesus, I strongly suggest that you get another drink. (laughs) I mean, I might get a third one, but we'll see how I finish this one off first. Okay, well, I got another drink. Those of you listening along, you know, drink at your own risk, obviously at your own preference, but this is a real dark one. I got another buzz ball, even though I said I wouldn't. She has absolutely no restraint, people. So, the next eyewitness account we have is from John of Ephesus. Strap in, you guys, because John of Ephesus had seen some shit. He was a bishop who worked in Justinian's court. He wrote a history that included a very long account of the uh, Justinian plague, and it was longer and more detailed than Procopius. He wrote shit down. So, his eyewitness account is now lost, but parts of it have been quoted in other places. The opening section in a later account by Michael the Syrian in the 1100s, and the rest of it by someone named Pseudo-Dionysus of tel Ugh, oh, of course he's Pseudo-Dionysus. There's only one Dionysus. Right. Writing in the 700s AD, and the original only exists in one single handwritten manuscript that's currently now in the Vatican, and that in itself blew my mind. Like, this extremely personal, extremely detailed eyewitness account of this horrific event was just in this one scrap of paper, you know, this voice coming down to us from time. Like, it was important that he tell us this. He wanted to tell us this shit and wrestled with it, you know, and that's how it came down to us through this extremely tenuous line. So I had feels about that when I was writing this. It really connected to John of Ephesus, you guys. I mean, wait till you hear it. It is, this is the part that kind of made me cry when I was reading it. Yeah, it wasn't the Procopius shit. It was John of Ephesus. Yeah, one particular thing did it. Well, tell me what it is for you, because I have a lot for me, so. Uh, I mean, it's a lot. I'll, 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 when we get to each one, I'll tell you. I'm like, that bit, and that bit, and that bit. We're just two traumatized people reading an account from another traumatized person who's probably more traumatized than us by a lot. It's Ephesus, right? Not Ephesus, right? It could be Ephesus. I could be wrong. I'm going to say John of Ephesus, but I'm just doing that because one of us will be right. We're going to cover all our bases here. So John of Ephesus' account 
was written in classical Syriac, an ancient liturgical language that evolved from Aramaic. We're getting this eyewitness account through the lens of several translations and languages. Just an FYI. So John of Ephesus' account expands on what Procopius tells us, and I wonder what's been lost because what he tells us that is preserved is very detailed, and it is horrific, like Middle Ages Black Death level horrific. And I have to say, when I originally thought I would cover the Plague of Justinian, I thought it was just in Byzantium. Like, I did not realize the scale. One thing that comes through is a deep and pervasive grief. It just leaps off the page. John of Ephesus was an early leader in the Syriac Orthodox Church, an early branch of Christianity based in Syria and Asia Minor. John of Ephesus was very active in Asia Minor and was also an important official in Justinian's court. So he did a lot of traveling back and forth. When he started to witness the plague, he was on the road traveling from Syria to Byzantium. So he had a front row seat to what was happening early on, before the plague reached Byzantium, before it even reached Egypt. He says that the plague started in southeast India. He says one of the first signs of the plague there was that a strange disease was causing, quote, was causing men to become enraged, like dogs. They became mad, attacked one another, went into the mountains, and committed suicide. So from there, the plague wound up in Cush, an ancient name for the kingdom of Nubia, directly south of Egypt, along the Nile. From there, it started showing up in Egypt. According to John of Ephesus, it didn't come to Pelusium from the Near East. Instead, it traveled up the Nile. So there's a little bit of a discrepancy here in terms of where the plague came from. Although it theoretically didn't have to be a discrepancy because Procopius just says that it came to Pelusium in grain barges. We assume that those grain barges came over the Mediterranean from the Near East, but they could have come up the Nile from the South. Like, I'm not sure that it, I don't think it says in Procopius's account. No, exactly. John was in Palestine when the plague hit, traveling from Syria to Constantinople. So he saw firsthand what happened when the plague hit the first settlements in the Mediterranean area, long before Procopius did. He writes how he traveled from Palestine through Mesopotamia and to Byzantium. When the plague was at its height, seeing villages depopulated and in terror, that he and his party would be stricken dead at any moment. He wrote down some of the sights he saw in his travels. Villages completely depopulated, corpses lying everywhere and no one to bury them. Other villages left with just a handful of people faced with the impossible task of burying hundreds. Cattle and herd animals abandoned and feral in the fields and mountains. Grains and fruits ripening and rotting with no one to harvest them. I don't know what route John was taking to get to Byzantium. Traveling from Syria to Egypt and then to Byzantium is definitely the long way. But he writes next about what was happening in Egypt and he writes about it as if he'd been there. According to John, when the plague reached Egypt, it emptied out whole cities and towns. Those who didn't die quickly died slowly, racked with agony, with tumors of the groin, quote-unquote, that swelled and burst. Whole families died, then whole villages, putrefying corpses piled up in public places with no one to bury them. He goes into this in detail. Then he zeroes in on Alexandria. He talks about how the disease struck like lightning, with seemingly healthy people suddenly dropping dead in the street. Quote, It happened that a stretcher being carried by four carriers, they fell and perished. One fell as he spoke, 
The other ran away. Another died while eating. Every man lost hope of living and was afraid to go out, saying, I shall perish in the middle of the house. So, in Alexandria, too, people were self-isolating, for the same reason they did in Byzantium. Quote, Men feared to go into the streets because of the stink of corpses and bodies being eaten by dogs. Those who had to go out, usually to bury the dead, would hang tablets on their arms with information written down, their name, the name of their parents and their neighborhood, and a plea for anyone who found their corpse to tell their parents and ask them to come and bury them, lest they drop dead suddenly in the street. I mean, that just really speaks to the paranoia and fear. Like, people wouldn't go out without, like, a label on them. Yeah, essentially like a dog tag. That was one of the bits that got to me. So we're not sure if John of Ephesus was in Alexandria when the plague hit, but clearly this man had seen some shit. His writing is very specific and very vivid. It's full of lamentations. John was a Christian, and there's a lot of calling for the reader to lament in a specifically religious context. He calls for the reader to weep and lament over some very harrowing things that he probably saw himself. Quote, over corpses which split open and rotted on the streets with nobody to bury them. Over houses large and small, beautiful and desirable, which suddenly became tombs for their inhabitants, and in which servants and masters at the same time suddenly fell dead, mingling their rottenness together in their bedrooms, and not one of them escaped who might remove their corpses from within the house. Over others who perished falling in the streets, to become a terrible and shocking spectacle for those who saw them, as their bellies were swollen and their mouths wide open, throwing up pus-like torrents, their eyes inflamed, and their hands stretched out upward and over the corpses rotting and lying, on corners and streets and in the porches of courtyards and in churches and martyria and everywhere, with nobody to bury them. Over the ships, in the midst of the sea, whose sailors were suddenly attacked by God's wrath, and the ships became tombs for their captains, and they continued adrift on waves carrying the corpses of their owners. The ships got to me. Over other ships, which arrived in harbors, were moored by their owners, and remained so, never to be untied by them again. Over the palaces, which groaned one to the other. Over bridal chambers, where the brides were adorned in finery, but all of a sudden, there were just lifeless and fearsome corpses. Over virgins, which had been guarded in their bedchambers, and now there was nobody to carry them from these bedchambers to the tombs. Over highways, which became deserted. Over roads on which the traffic was interrupted. Over villages whose inhabitants perished altogether. Over many things of this kind, which defeat all who have the power of speech in their skill with words and stories. In the swath of uh, translated text that I found, there were a lot of these lists. Like, this is just one of many. You can tell he's just so desperate to preserve this list of what happened for the next person, for, you know, hopefully to help the next whoever. That's the thing he wants us to know. And that's why it just astounds me so much how tenuous the connection was that brought this through. And the fact that we are two goofballs reading this right now with our buzz balls is kind of ridiculous. I don't think he'd appreciate it. Or maybe he would. I don't know. Maybe he'd relate. John speaks of how overwhelmed he is by the idea of writing any of this down. And his trauma is just so obvious right now. And here's another quote. Quote, 
Thus, when I, a wretch, wanted to include these matters in a record of history, my thoughts were seized many times by stupor, and for many reasons I planned to omit it, firstly because all mouths and tongues are insufficient to relate it, and moreover because even if there could be found such that would record at least a little from among the multitude of matters, what use would it be? when the entire world was tottering and reaching its dissolution and the length of generations was cut short, and for whom would he who wrote be writing? That was what got me. It's like, what's even the point? I know. He's writing for me. He's writing for Jen. He's writing for all of us listening right now as we drink. As we drink, because what he's writing is deeply, deeply upsetting. And I'm glad he did. This is the bit that... By this point in time, I was crying, but by this next quote, I'm going to read to you. Eventually, the plague crossed the Mediterranean Sea, and when that happened, John said eerie apparitions were seen at sea. Quote, when this plague was passing from one land to another, many people saw shapes of bronze boats and figures sitting in them, resembling people with their heads cut off, holding staves, also of bronze, they moved along the sea and could be seen going whithersoever they headed. Those figures were seen everywhere in a frightening fashion, especially at night. Like flashing bronze and like fire did they appear, black people without heads sitting in a glistening boat and traveling swiftly on the sea, so that this sight almost caused the souls of the people who saw it to expire. That was the bit that really upset me. You just imagine, like, just seeing these boats, these spectral ships, like the amount of people who would have been, like, lost on boats just in general during this plague. But this is just so haunting. It's just like one of those things that I don't know. I, I live in North Carolina in Wilmington, and um, and I'm down by the river, and I see the boats go up and down all the time. It's one of those things I, I watch from my window. And I can just imagine watching these boats go by and just the feeling of like they're headless sailors just continually rowing swiftly upriver, but there's nobody really there. I don't know, just something, they're bronze. It just makes me think of like Egyptian mythology and the Book of the Dead and the rivers of the underworld. It just feels really like visceral and mythologized to me and haunting. It is totally mythologized, but it's also a really astute observation because this disease was traveling by sea. The menacing aspect of ships going up and down on the Mediterranean and bringing the disease with them is true. Like, that's true. Oh, yeah. I mean, these are the ships that brought the death. Even if there's no one captaining those, like, piloting their ships anymore, they're going to hit ground somewhere. And when they do, death is going to come with them swiftly absolutely because the rats are going to come off the ship even if the people don't come off so yeah if the ship doesn't get sunk somewhere and it hits land that's it so the plague cleaned out all the cities and villages of palestine leaving them entirely depopulated john says the horrors that took place in palestine exceeded those in alexandria by far <laughs> When John reached Byzantium, the plague was not far behind. So like Procopius, he was also in Byzantium at the same time. He says people dropped like flies, as many as 16,000 in a single day. So he's saying it's even bigger than what Procopius said. Eventually, people stopped counting. 
Nobles and commoners died in equal numbers, and even animals, cattle, dogs, rats, even wild animals were struck down. And that does kind of make sense because the fleas did bite, you know, kind of equal opportunity. Well, remember, the fleas are so crazy infected as well that, you know, they don't really know what or where they're biting, just that they need to bite. Right. They're jumping from host to host, and some animals might have better defenses than others. So... As in Alexandria, part of the terror of the plague was how quickly people died, falling dead seemingly with no prior symptoms or warning. And John of Ephesus writes about this, quote, As they were looking at each other and talking, they began to totter and fell either in the streets or at home, in harbors, on ships, in churches, and everywhere. It might happen that a person was sitting at work on his craft, holding his tools in his hands and working, and he would totter to the side and his soul would escape. It might happen that people came to the bath to bathe as usual and they would not be able to take off their clothes, but would fall and expire. It might happen that a person went out to market to buy necessities and while he was standing and talking or counting his change, suddenly the end would overcome the buyer here and the seller there, the merchandise remaining in the middle together with the payment for it, without there being either buyer or seller to pick it up. So the city, John says, came to a standstill. The food supply dried up. Nobody had the strength to buy or sell anything to market. Corpses proliferated. People started dragging their dead to the seashore where they were piled on boats and dumped at sea. Because that's a good idea. Procopius also describes bodies being dumped at sea. But John clearly witnessed this, and it was, as you can imagine, a horrific scene. I think Procopius probably also witnessed it, but John really got into the details. So this is the part about what happened when people were dumping the bodies at sea. I could just imagine him standing on the beach and looking at this. Can you imagine those boats that they saw going up and down now that, I, now that we're going to tell you this? Now I'm just like, what if they were just boats full of corpses? A lot of them probably were. Yeah, just forever circling the sea. Quote, Standing on the seashore, one could see litters colliding with each other and coming back to carry and to throw upon the earth two or three corpses, to go back again and to bring further corpses. Others carried the corpses on boards and carrying poles, bringing and piling them one upon the other. For other corpses, since they had rotted and putrefied, Matting was sewn together. People bore them on carrying poles and coming to the shore threw them down with pus running out of them and they would return bringing corpses again. Others who were standing on the seashore dragged them and threw them down upon the boats, piling them up in heaps of two or three and even of five thousand each. Innumerable corpses piled up on the entire seashore like flotsam on great rivers, and the pus flowed, discharging itself down into the sea. Wow. Yeah. So eventually, even those burying the dead grew too weak, and the city was drowning in corpses. This was a real problem, the number of corpses that were just in the streets and the fact that there were not enough healthy people to bury them. The healthy people didn't want to leave their houses. I mean, that is real fair. So Justinian, the emperor, had to take action. He put a subordinate, Theodorus, in charge of this problem. Theodorus dug long trenches outside the city and paid people for every corpse buried there. He was giving out money for anyone who would bring a corpse to these trenches. 
And that solved the problem sort of for a while until the trenches got full and then people started putting bodies in towers. But before that happened, people started breaking into houses to find corpses to bury because this was now a paid job. John of Ephesus writes of the horrible things people found when breaking into various houses. You know what I was just thinking? It, it probably wasn't just money they were being paid, although I'm sure they were paid money. At this point, think about it, Jenny. It's food that's more valuable than money. So they were probably given food rations if they did this. And if your family's starving, you would risk it. I mean, to be fair, I haven't seen mention of that. But the other thing is, like, if you get money, you can't spend it because the markets are not functional. He had to be paying them something that was worth leaving their house. So I don't know what he was paying them, but I don't think gold was what they wanted. Well, what John of Ephesus and Procopius say was that it was like a lot of gold, like a lot of gold. Like people were being paid a lot to do this per corpse. Sure, and probably whatever they could steal from the person's house. That too. I mean, that would be like a side benefit. And this is just a kind of an aside. I didn't really write this into the episode, but John of Ephesus talks a lot about looting. And when he talks about looting, he talks about people going into loot houses and stores and then being struck dead by various supernatural forces. It's like he's kind of trying to establish a moral narrative where people didn't loot, but I imagine it happened a lot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> anyway, so as I said, people started breaking into houses to find corpses to bury because this was now a paid job. And John of Ephesus writes of the horrible things people found when breaking into houses. Live babies and children still sucking at the breasts of dead mothers. That broke me. <laughs> yeah, that's a bad one. Nobles alone locked in houses of dead servants and just loads of houses full of the dead lying where they fell. So John of Ephesus says even the emperor and empress Justinian and Theodora were reduced to a miserable existence in their palace. Everyone in the imperial palace was sunk into grief, and the imperial couple was served only by a few still-living servants. This, this actually broke me, this part. People no longer wept over the dead, but just walked around numb and slightly giddy. I mean, that's a trauma response. Mm-hmm. That's a PTSD response. There was no more weeping or funerary laments, because you're just overwhelmed. You're just, you've seen too much. Absolutely. As in Alexandria, nobody went outside without a tablet hung on their neck or arm detailing who they were and where their people were in case they dropped dead in the street. Because there are types of plague that come on real fast. Pneumonic plague will kill you in 36 hours. 100% fatality. And these plague burial trenches that John of Ephesus talks about, Procopius also mentions them. But John really goes into detail and these were horror scenes. I'm going to give you a quote. Get ready. I know. This also made me cry. All right, you guys, strap in. Quote, Also on those pits into which people were thrown and trodden upon, while men stood below, deep as in an abyss, and others above, the latter dragged and threw down the corpses, like stones being thrown from a sling, and the former grabbed and threw them one on top of another, arranging the rows in alternative directions. Because of scarcity of room, both men and women were trodden upon. Young people and children were pressed together, trodden upon by feet and trampled like spoiled grapes. Then again from above, other corpses were thrown head downwards and went down and split asunder beneath. Noble men and women, old men and women, youths and virgins, young girls and babies, the corpse which was trampled sank and was immersed in the pus of those below it. 
since it was after five or as much as ten days that the corpses reached this place of pernicious prostration. Continuing the quote, quote, How can any eye endure seeing these heaps of little children and babies piled up in mounds like dung on the earth? Who would not weep more over us who behold the sight to which our sins have brought us rather than over the dead? Even if we shall later be blamed for deficiency of mind by the wise, it becomes us, confronting this sight, O brothers, to raise wailing and lamentations for ourselves, and not for those dead, and say, Woe to you, our eyes, for what you see. Woe to you, our bitter life, for the destruction you have encountered, which has come upon the kindred of your body, while your eyes look on. It would be much better for us who saw it to be mingled with those who drank the cup of wrath, who ended their journey and did not experience that destruction, or whose heart is darkened together with their eyes, mind, and thought. So yeah, that that broke me. That was really hard for me too, because I felt like he's basically saying he would rather be in the pit himself than witness the pit. That's exactly what he's saying. And he's saying not only that, like what's happened to us as a result of seeing this is that we can't even like something fundamentally human is broken in us now. Like we, it's hard to, to see that and still be able to feel and lament and be who we were before because we're not even crying at the sight of these mounds of children just dead. We're so hardened and darkened and, you know, destroyed and changed by this experience. Absolutely. And I feel that myself in my own life, like grief changes you. I have not seen what he's seen. And I would never claim to have seen what he's seen, but I've seen my own grief and, you know, my own loved ones dying and you have too. And it's just like it, you get to a point where to survive, you have to harden yourself. You do, and it changes you. Fundamentally, you don't go back to being the person you were before it, because you can't. A part of you has died in order to survive what you've been through, and that's kind of what he's saying here. And again, I've never experienced anything on the level of what he's experienced, and he's writing this years later, still in the traumas of his grief from it. And as I was reading this, as I said, it just like I was crying the whole time. I was so upset and moved by the fact that this account has existed, that we get to read it and witness it and, you know, share this story, the story that, as Jenny said, we're two randos sitting in our closets, drinking buzz balls, telling you about one of the darkest moments in humanity and the guy who wrote it down. And the fact that we're able to tell you this is because he was able to write this down and it was preserved and we're able to read it to you. And somebody felt strongly enough about it to write it down themselves like we're doing now. Well, not just that, like the fact that it survived, because like, it's not just that he would have been the only one writing it. He's one of the few people whose account survived. That doesn't mean he was the only one writing about it. No, but somebody copied it from him and that survived because his original account didn't survive. And we're doing that now, too. We're taking that old account translated from different lenses and writing it down our own abridged version. Like we're doing that act again. So we're now part of the chain carrying it forward. I feel like that's meaningful. And you and I both have our traumas that aren't the same at the same scale, but that lead us both to relate to this in a weird way. Like the other thing that I relate to that he mentioned is how people were just walking around the city numb and giddy. Like 
that like I like we said like that's that's a PTSD response like Jen and I have both been in that place you know and and it's something that is counterintuitive to grief because I never would have thought before that I would get to that place yeah it's kind of like your body just overloads and you don't know how to be or what to do or or anything and so you kind of just do all the things I mean, maybe we should have acknowledged before that we're not psychiatrists, so I don't know that we're talking about this correctly. These are just our experiences. We're not psychiatrists. That's just what happened for me. Neither of us have any degrees in medicine or psychiatry or psychology, so we're just giving you our first-hand accounts and what we can relate to. I'm sure some of you will feel the same, but, you know, obviously, we're not mental health professionals. So we have one more eyewitness account to talk about, and it brings us something new to the table. Evagrius Scholasticus's account. So Evagrius was a scholar and eventual church historian who was a child in Antioch when the plague hit for the first time. So he was a kid when this happened. And he's the only one of the three who caught the plague, but he survived. However, the plague didn't just stop in the 540s AD. It came back and back and back in waves for 52 years of this man's life. Four times it returned in Evagrius' lifetime, and each time it exacted a horrific price. It killed his wife, his daughter, and her child, his grandchild, other children of his, and most of the servants and people who lived at his estate in the country. So, like, most of his friends and family died of this throughout his lifetime. Like, this guy must have had some real survivor trauma. Evagrius isn't alone in describing the plague's inexplicable behavior, but his bewilderment leaps off the page when he talks about this. You can see him searching for some pattern and failing to find it. He describes how it came in all seasons and completely depopulated some cities and towns, others it left unscathed, except for a few households completely decimated. He writes about being confused as to why the plague would sometimes leave some people untouched, only to return later and kill those same people years later. It's like they want some kind of moral lesson, like these people were saved because they were good people, but then the plague comes back and kills those people. Yeah, what did they do? What sin did they commit to have the plague come back and revisit them? And that's a big theme in John of Ephesus. Like, he talks about sin a lot, and there's a lot of guilt. Like, he thinks that they caused this. Which I can't imagine how much that would add to the trauma. That's Christianity. (laughs) So Evagrius describes how this randomness of the plague was replicated in his own family. Quote, Thus it happened in my own case, for I deem it fitting to insert also in this history matters relating to myself, that at the commencement of this calamity, I was seized with what are termed buboes, while still a schoolboy, and lost by its recurrence at different times several of my children, my wife, and many of my kin, as well as of my domestic and country servants, the several indictions making, as it were, a distribution of my misfortunes. Thus, not quite two years before my writing this, being now in the 58th year of my age, on its fourth visit to Antioch, I lost a daughter and her son, besides those who had died previously. He describes the plague as, quote, a complication of diseases with myriad bewildering symptoms. And he writes of being confused with how the disease spread. Quote, For some perished by merely living with the infected, others by only touching them, others by having entered their chamber, others by frequenting public places. 
Some, having fled from the infected cities, escaped themselves, but imparted the disease to the healthy. Some were altogether free from contagion, though they had associated with many who were afflicted, and had touched many not only in their sickness, but also when dead. Some, too, who were desirous of death on account of the utter loss of their children and friends, and with this view placed themselves as much as possible in contact with the disease, were nevertheless not infected, as if the pestilence struggled against their purpose. There's so much humanity in these eyewitness accounts. Tower of corpses. Tower of corpses, man. You don't have to have had a tower of corpses in your city to relate to this. Anyway, so... The plague of Justinian spread throughout Asia, Europe, North Africa, and the Mediterranean world. Bodies as far away as Germania had it. That's where researchers got the DNA of Yersinia pestis from. The first outbreak raged from 541 to as long as 549 in northern Europe. By the time it subsided in Byzantium, about 40% of the city's inhabitants were dead, depending on, you know, whatever account you're reading. And one in four people throughout the Mediterranean, although I've seen estimations as many as three in five, this could have added up to as many as 100 million people in total. So it was a lot of people. It was as big as the, as the Black Death in Europe. And the disease came back in waves. We saw that with Evagrius Scholasticus. The disease kept coming back even within one person's lifetime. It kept coming back until as late as the 700s AD in more localized outbreaks, adding up to several hundred years of misery and death. So, here's the question we have to ask in almost every episode we do this season. Did a volcano do it? Quite possibly. Because you have to remember that the people affected by the Justinian Plague had already lived through about four years of volcanic winter and all the famine, droughts, floods, blight, and starvation that went with that. If you go back and listen to our previous episodes, you'll get more information about this. 536 AD has been frequently labeled the worst year in history to be alive. So people were already suffering and starving before the plague hit. Constant stress can lower your immune system, making people all over the Mediterranean world, the Near East, Europe, and Asia especially vulnerable to this disease. And you know what, Jenny? I just keep thinking about the frogs from our first episode this season. Oh, good Lord, bring in the frogs. It's time for frogs to be all up in our officials. All up in our officials. So, like, I never really thought that much about frogs until we talked about that in the Plagues of Egypt episode. But as I've said a few times now, frogs are indicator species because they can live on both land and in the water. One of the things that I learned in that research is, you know, when something's going wrong with the climate or the the ecosystem, look to the frogs. Our last episode, we talked about how the frogs were in trees that weren't normally in trees. A lot of times what happens is the frog population will rapidly expand when these things happen. And then because of water pollution and in the five five thirty six of it all, probably there was, you know, uh, contaminated water and rain and things like that, it'll contract. And when the frog population contracts like that, flies and lice and other insects, their population now is unchecked by frogs and it rapidly multiplies because one of their big predators isn't there in the same numbers to corral them or control them anymore. Yeah, but I'm also going to say that Yersinia pestis is deadly no matter what. Without modern antibiotics, 
its kill rate is 30% to 100%, depending on where the infection is. This disease is going to fuck you up, even if your immune system is fully operational, no matter what is going on with your frogs. It's going to mess you up. Yeah, frogs aren't going to save you, I'm just saying. Like, the frogs of it all is 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 telling us to what's going to happen. <laughs> The bigger question is, did the drop in temperatures, because what we know about 536 AD is that there was a big drop in temperature and a lot of climactic change. So did all of that caused by the volcanic winter create conditions where a plague outbreak was likely to happen? Yes. (laughs) You would say yes, but the research on this that I have found is it's a little bit muddled. Like I've had a hard time drawing a real clear through line here. Yeah, I mean, look, (laughs) I say yes because I want it to be yes, but the reality is, like, it's a cocktail of a lot of things have to happen to make this happen, right? Right, but interestingly, the medieval Black Death, that was preceded by another volcanic eruption, the Somalis eruption of 1257, with an explosivity index of 7. That was followed by several other eruptions that occurred toward the end of the 1200s, and that according to some research, was what plunged Europe into another period of cooling that led to the Little Ice Age and also resulted in the Black Death. The Middle Ages Black Death was also preceded by a volcanic eruption. Was it a coincidence? I think not. A lot of researchers also think not. Yeah, because it leads to scarcity in general when you have these really long, cold winters and you have different creatures behaving in ways they wouldn't normally, spreading diseases because they're also fighting for uh, what resources are, are there and available to them. Now, several studies have shown that the rodents that carry the plague are very sensitive to climate change. The science behind this is still very much under dispute, but we've seen studies that suggest that the cold periods in both the Justinian Plague and the medieval Black Death were accompanied by high rainfall in some areas, including the areas where the outbreaks first occurred. Remember that there was both drought and deluges in the ancient Chinese record from 536 AD. And also, we know the frogs were in the trees, which was an odd place for them to be. This would have caused a boom to rodent populations, the theory goes, which would have caused a Yersinia pestis outbreak to spill over into human populations. Justinian never gained back the empire that was lost. By the time the plague subsided around 549 AD, give or take, his army was vastly weakened and he struggled to maintain a foothold in the lands he'd won back. By the time he died in 565, Italy fell under the control of the Lombards. It would never be Roman again. Justinian got mixed reviews on how he handled the plague. On one hand, he gave out large sums of gold to pay for public burials, those gruesome trenches that John of Ephesus described. On the other, according to Procopius, who had a chip on his shoulder against Justinian, bear this in mind, he also ruthlessly taxed the dying population to continue to fund his building projects, mainly churches. He was, perhaps, hoping to stave off the wrath of God. It's like, oh God, if I give you another church and another church, will you make this end? And I will also ignore the suffering of my population in order to do this. Yep. Mm Mm-hmm. Sounds pretty Catholic. If the population is properly indoctrinated, then they would want to give that as well, even if they're starving, if it means they could end this. Like, growing up Catholic, I would be like, sure, take whatever you need. Yeah, God needs it. It's done. That indoctrination is strong, and it might have it might have also been something that he was doing to control the, the part of the population that was healthy enough to work. The sense that I get is that the essential workers were absolutely either dying on the job or walking off the job. There were not essential workers at this time. 
No. So, did the plague cause the downfall of the Roman Empire? It's hard to say for sure, and this is something that historians still debate today. But there was a time, early in Justinian's reign, when he and Theodora were optimistic. They believed they could bring back the glory of the old regime and regain all that was lost. There was a time in their reign when it seemed like they would actually pull it off. And maybe if this plague hadn't happened, it all could have ended differently. So, that's it for this week. Another cheery summer episode from Ancient History Fangirl. Plague Girl Summer Edition! (laughs) Join us next week when we're going to be talking about something different, not plague, I hope. Can't guarantee. We make no promises. In the meantime, find us on Twitter, which is currently circling the drain, but still limping along. We're at Ancient Hist Fan on there. And we're also on TikTok threads and Instagram and Facebook at Ancient History Fangirl. And join our Patreon at patreon.com slash Ancient History Fangirl to get extra bonus content. And Jenny, we have some patrons to thank this week, don't we? We do. Apologize to anyone whose name we mispronounce. We're really sorry. Sarah Wachope. I'm sorry, I probably screwed that up. Fox Gremlin. Claire Byrne Martinez. Alice Richard. That's it, I guess, right? Yeah, that's it for this week. We will see you next week. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.